1: Disclaimer. Horror Hill is a horror anthology podcast, bringing you scary stories from all corners of the internet and beyond. As such, certain stories include content that some listeners might find offensive. Listener discretion is advised. Hello there, listeners, and welcome back to Horror Hill. I'm your host and narrator, Eric Peabody. And tonight's episode features two stories with a common theme, the limitations of the human experience. Chances are that all of us, at one time or another, has felt frustration with the constraints inherent to our experience here on Earth. Whether it's something as physical as not being as tall as you'd like to be, or as nebulous as ruining the banality of daily life, this yearning has fueled a quest for human improvement that has spanned our history. And these two tales tonight take that admirable goal and bring it somewhere a little dark. First, we'll be reading Evolution, Inc. by Jackson Arthur. This is a story about Marcus Salinger, a man living in New York City without the use of his legs. However, Marcus is also a scientific genius and just so happens to be heading a very interesting project at Evolution, Incorporated. This project isn't just interesting in its potential promises to humanity, but also in the ire it's raised among a very vocal group of opponents. Where is the tipping point between medical advancement and traipsing in God's domain? And is Marcus sure that he's maintained enough objectivity to know the difference? Closing out this episode, we'll be covering Threshold by Brett O'Reilly. We open with a janitor in an Ikea store who is cleaning up a very unlikely mess, a trail of blood leading through the store to a plywood partition with a door painted on it. This facade of a door is nothing more than a decoration, but a strange man walked through the door just earlier that night and is now gone. All that's left behind is the trail of blood that poured from the self-inflicted wound on his wrist. As the police investigate this strange occurrence, they slowly realize that the situation is far stranger than they initially thought. Accompanying me tonight are two guests, Rissa Montañez in Evolution, Inc., and Melissa Medina in Threshold. Please join me in welcoming them both back to the show. You're listening to the Standard Edition of this program. If you'd like to help support Horror Hill and also remove these pesky ads, head to ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. You'll get instant access to hundreds of ad-free stories, and we can scale back some of our uh, less savory means of generating money for the show. By the way, you wouldn't happen to still have all of your organs, would you? And now, from author Jackson Arthur, I give you Evolution, Inc. The subway train shot beneath the city like a shiny, elongated bullet, rubbing and vibrating against the thin metal rails. It sped, twisting and turning, throughout New York's underbelly, the old, decaying tunnels beneath the flourishing capital of the world. Marcus Salinger often wondered about the subway system. New York City seemed to be advancing at such a swift rate that everything was always newer and shinier every day. Yet the subway tunnels looked as if they were about to crumble down around him. Why didn't they get an upgrade? With the sudden and unexpected popularity of monorails, why did subways even still exist? Maybe some old ideas simply refused to die. The text of a science book, Angels and Atoms, filled a small computer screen which extended from the arm of Marcus's wheelchair. With his head tilted down toward the words, Marcus read, trying to avoid eye contact from other writers. However, a voice sang out from above, making him peek. Evel? The word evil in light blue, flowed through the flat television mounted above the nearby exit, The word also filled the many other screens throughout the subway car. As the word faded, a woman with dark brown hair, curls falling to her shoulders, appeared on the screen wearing an all-blue jumpsuit. Her frame was petite, and her buttermilk-colored skin was flawless, as if fake. She spoke.
2: The next step in humanity has arrived. Immortality is no longer myth or legend but as real
1: as your own mind. Suddenly, the jumpsuit faded and the woman was left naked. Her skin reminded Marcus of smooth rubber.
2: On July 4th, join us here at Evel and let us take that next step together.
1: Slowly, her skin faded, leaving a metallic android.
2: And skin will no longer hold us in. And death will no longer hold sway. It is time to shed our dying and live forever.
1: The woman disappeared, leaving only the word Evel, and then that was also gone. Marcus lowered his eyes again, but listened to the murmurs among some of the other passengers. He heard someone snicker and curse. He heard someone begin to pray to their god. Both responses were growing abundant these days. Then, Marcus heard something that he had not experienced much of these days. Two seats down from Marcus's personal chair, an elderly gentleman turned to his companion and whispered, "'God bless them.' "'Amen,' the lady replied. "'I only wish that all of this had come sooner,' the man said. "'I would be the first in line, by damned. Wouldn't that be nice, dear, living together forever?' She simply nodded. "'Today could be the day, you know. "'I hope so. "'Our time's almost up.' Marcus's identification badge felt heavy in his shirt pocket. He would hurry, he thought to himself. Marcus would hurry as if the Lord himself had kicked him in the ass. He would succeed, too, not only for himself, but also for good people like the old gentleman and his lady.' The old man reminded Marcus of someone. His grandfather. The birds leapt and pecked at the falling breadcrumbs while George Salinger giggled at the flapping feathers. Aren't they beautiful, Marcus? George turned to his grandson and handed him a full piece of bread. Break it up nice and small so that one bird won't hog the whole thing. Okay, Marcus answered. "'fidgeting because the park bench was uncomfortable against his spine. "'With his short fingers, Marcus began to break up the dry, stale piece of bread. "'Okay,' he repeated, wanting nothing but to impress his grandfather with his bread-breaking skills. "'All of the Lord's special animals were given wings,' George said. "'You hear me, Marcus?' "'Wings. That's how I know that humans are not God's chosen.' "'Because we were never given wings. "'Birds, insects, angels. "'Not mankind, nope.' "'Marcus continued to squirm "'as the ache rolled up and down the center of his back. "'Ignoring the pain, he threw out the crumbs as far as he could "'and watched as the little birds attacked. "'Birds, insects, angels. "'Not people,' Marcus added.' his prepubescent voice cracking. "'What's wrong?' George asked, recognizing that Marcus was fidgeting against the park bench. "'My back hurts,' Marcus replied. "'Again? You've been sitting here too long is why,' George told him. "'Go play with the other children over by the fountain. I can watch you from here. You don't need to keep an old man company. Go, run, be active!' Marcus noticed the other kids, three of them, running and playing around the giant tree made of white stone. From several man made pores built into the stone tree flowed streams of water. Dusk was near, and the low sunlight reflected across the flowing water, giving it the illusion of liquid fire. Marcus sluggishly agreed to join the other kids, but when he jumped from the bench, his feet couldn't feel the ground. His entire body toppled over, causing Marcus to cry out. He immediately reached for his legs, but without sensations, Marcus could not at once find them. Pushing a button, Marcus scrolled to the next page in Angels and Adams and came across a sentence that stood out. He finished reading it, went back, and then re-read the sentence a second time. It was ironic that he would read this passage on this day. The sentence went If science and faith refuse to find a common ground and work together, humankind will never progress any further. As Marcus considered what he had read, the train's air brakes hissed, bringing the machine to a slow stop. Fresh passengers entered and tired commuters exited. Without completely raising his eyes, Marcus noticed a woman and her young son come aboard. They sat directly across from Marcus. He thought about nodding or smiling at them, but didn't. Distant background noise suddenly became clear to Marcus as CNN 4 returned from a commercial break. The voice of a female broadcaster caught his attention. Evel, Susanna Prepon began before pausing to shuffle her note cards.
2: The self proclaimed makers of miracles hope to accomplish their grandest miracle to date, a miracle worthy of the Almighty Himself, one that they simply call Angel. They will do this today, July 4th, a day known in history as the celebration of independence and freedom. Is there symbolism in using this day? One can only speculate.
1: Another train stop came and went, doors opened and closed, but Marcus kept his attention on the television.
2: The mystery of the human brain has been solved, or so Evel claims. And according to Evel, this long-awaited triumph comes with an endless array of possibilities. An end to disease, an end to hunger, maybe even an end to death. But how, and what exactly is Angel? Apparently, according to an Evel spokesperson, the human mind works like an advanced computer, only specific to each and every person, but a computer nonetheless. Like the data on your computer, everything in it that makes it unique can be transferred to another system. And this idea is the foundation for ANGEL. The Evel spokesperson refused to give any more details. But through commercials that have been running for several weeks, the idea is pretty obvious. Humans could become robots. There is one man, though, who refuses to stand by and let this happen.
1: A picture of Senator Long appeared in the corner his dark eyes sitting behind thick-rimmed glasses.
2: Senator Arthur Long,
1: the woman continued,
2: is angry. They are going to take away our flesh and replace it with metal. They want us all to be robots. Long has been quoted as saying, Senator Long is an active leader of a growing movement known as Skin Against Metal, or SAM who are, at the moment, continuing their stern protest outside of Evil headquarters in New York. Senator Long, a war veteran, has adamantly spoken out against Evil and the use of cybernetics. Senator Long promises that the protest will remain peaceful, but some worry that the growing tension, which has been building steadily over the past year or so, will erupt very soon. Could the members of SAM and the supporters of Evil ever find common ground? Or... Will this turn into a bitter battle for years to come? We will have to wait and see.
1: With these final words, a male newscaster appeared on the screen and began to report on the peace treaty between China and North Korea, which did not interest Marcus. Wait and see. No more waiting. Today the world will see, Marcus was thinking, when suddenly he recognized a young man that was sitting several feet from him. Marcus knew the face, but how? When the young man returned Marcus's creepy stare, it came back to him. Johnny. His name was Johnny. And Johnny's right eye was a portion of a second slower than the other, because it was robotic. Marcus recalled that Johnny's real eye had been torn out by a dog as a toddler. They might even unroll all your toilet paper next time. It's just what happens when you two find a new place together. But you're not doing it because you feel like it. No, you're doing it because you love them. Because they're family. And that's why Apartments.com has the most pet-friendly rental listings on the internet so that you and your furry family can find the perfect new place together. Apartments.com
0: Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot
1: Evel, that was how Marcus recognized Johnny. But did Johnny recognize Marcus in return? Probably not. Marcus had handled the case from a distance, never meeting the young man face to face. Why did Johnny continue to stare then, even after Marcus had stopped? Marcus already knew the answer. The young man, like many others, was staring at a cripple, a broken man in a world where nothing seemed to remain broken for too long. If a toddler was made whole after an angry dog had taken his eye, why couldn't Marcus be made whole too? What about robotics? George Salinger asked trying to keep his voice from shaking as he spoke to Dr. Peterson. ''I hear there are lots of improvements in the field. Reconstruction, rebuilding, cybernetics, replacing bones and even organs.'' Dr. Peterson replied, ''True, cybernetics is rapidly growing, but I don't believe that would be able to help your grandson, Mr. Salinger.'' ''Can't they rebuild or replace whatever's broken?'' If they can rebuild an entire working arm for that marine over in the desert, can't they rebuild or fix my grandson? Marcus sat next to his grandfather, taking in the conversation with only half attention. It was difficult for him to focus when he was so dreadfully uncomfortable. He tried to adjust his spine by fidgeting, but the warm pain remained. His brain is faulty, Mr. Salinger, the doctor answered. That is the major problem here. The brain is having problems sending and receiving signals with the body, and the brain will eventually lose signal completely with certain parts of the body, like the legs, for example. There's just no way for us to build or engineer parts of the brain. It's too complex for any kind of machinery to replicate. It can't be done right now. It may never be possible. George Salinger looked defeated. Is there anything that we can do for him? The signals have begun to slowly deteriorate, Dr. Peterson said. But it will take time for them to completely shut down. The lack of sensation and movement ability that Marcus is experiencing right now is temporary, but will eventually become permanent. Okay. Dr. Peterson continued. I know of a medication that might work at slowing down the deterioration. That would be our best option right now. His body and his brain are having problems with their communication, Mr. Salinger, and this med will work as an intermediary, like a marriage counselor, or a preacher talking to God for his congregation. What about the pain? Marcus seems to be feeling mild discomfort right now, Dr. Peterson began. "'But the pain will slowly intensify over the years. "'The medication will not help with that pain. "'We should start Marcus on a pain management regimen as soon as possible. "'We don't want to rely completely on drugs. "'We're going to use other forms of pain management as well.' "'Thank you, Dr. Peterson.' "'Don't give up hope,' Dr. Peterson said. Evel is still considered to be a young pup, and we're still growing.' And miracles happen here every day. The lobby of Evel headquarters was nearly empty, with only one receptionist and two guards watching the front entrance of glass. Though empty, the main lobby was far from quiet. The doors were not soundproof, and the roar of the outside protesters traveled easily through the wide-open room. Marcus felt the vibrations as he steered his chair into the elevator. Marcus knew that the rest of the building would be nearly as empty. Any employees not assigned to Angel had been told to remain at home. The possibility of an aggravated outburst by the protesters made it necessary that only the bare essential staff were here, and most were waiting for Marcus on the 38th floor. Marcus had come into the building by way of the subway entrance, positioned on the side, away from the view of the protesters. He had to use it because the front doors were to remain locked. The subway entrance was rarely used, and Marcus was not entirely sure why it even existed. It required an ID card swipe, retina scan, and voice recognition to activate. With all the precautions, Marcus could not help but feel a sense of impending doom, and it made him a little nervous. With the tiny joystick on his armrest, Marcus turned his chair 180 degrees to face the elevator's panel. ''Doors close,'' he muttered, and once they had slid shut, he reached into the shirt's front pocket for his ID card. Suddenly, his left arm began to tremble uncontrollably. His spine and left forearm filled with liquid fire. A harsh breath escaped him while the pain continued to flow and burn him on the inside. The tremble in his arm became a familiar convulsion. Using his right arm, Marcus clutched the other and forced it onto the armrest. Quickly, yet carefully, he managed to lock two straps across his left arm, keeping it secure. Marcus had taken his meds already. It was too soon to take them again. Opening the compartment in the top of the right armrest, Marcus plucked out a vial tipped with a needle. Looking at his still-shaking arm, Marcus knew that he would never hit a vein. He took several seconds to consider the options, and the overwhelming pain chose for him. Swiftly, he stabbed the needle into the side of his neck and injected it. The drug was cold as it spread out and doused the fire in seconds. However, the shaking continued. Swiping the ID card, mumbling, 38th floor. Marcus got the elevator to move and he began to ascend the tower. As Marcus rolled from the elevator and into his lab, he noticed there were two groups of people waiting for him. The executive suits and the lab assistants. The sum of them barely made a dozen. Millions of lives might rest upon this test, Marcus knew, but only a handful of people would actually witness it. He wondered if this was how it felt the day that they tested the first atomic bomb. Quiet suits and assistants willing to change the world. Big day, Marcus, CEO Stockholm said, his hair and his suit black. Marcus ignored the words as he glided past the tie-wearing men and women. He headed directly toward the row of windows behind his desk. Through the tall windows, Marcus looked out across a sea of people that hated him and hated what he was trying to do. He could not help but hate them back. The crowd had been reaching close to a thousand or more. They did not block the streets, but instead filled Fruition Garden, a strip of land across the Evil headquarters. Evil had bought the plot and torn down the abandoned hospital that had once sat there. Over several months, Evel covered the seemingly useless piece of earth with soil and flowers and trees and sculptures of animals and people. At the center of this beautiful garden was a giant marble fountain in the shape of the Tree of Life, streams of water flowing out from within the bark. Marcus loved to sit and stare at the garden. He was reminded of childhood times with his grandfather. Now the garden may be forever tainted. Forming a human barrier between the protesters and Evel headquarters were the city police officers, and they were dressed in full riot gear. A precaution, Marcus assumed, but the police presence at Kent State University in 1970 might have started as a simple precaution as well. Marcus glared at the massive crowd. He was looking for a podium or a stage, any place from which Senator Long would speak. And Senator Long would speak. Marcus knew that. Giving up the search, Marcus reached with his steady hand and slid the window open. A roar flooded into the once soundproofed room. I want to hear them, Marcus stated. I want to hear them all. Marcus turned and once again wheeled past the suits this time coming to a large computer terminal. His assistants remained motionless, simply watching. Everything was already prepared, waiting for Marcus to finish. They were merely present in case something went wrong. Your arm, Mr. Salinger, Assistant Ross pointed out. Marcus shook his head. Salinger, password Prometheus. Marcus spoke bringing the computer screen to life. Open Marcus Salinger Mental Scan. A virtual file appeared and then opened, spilling out images. At the top left corner was Marcus, his full body profile slowly spinning. Next to his profile was a digital brain spotted by blues and reds. Across the bottom, waves flowed from left to right. All of this was Marcus... Not the skin, but the presence. Every neuron and cell and connection and misfire that was Marcus Salinger had been mapped, scanned, and downloaded into this computer, faulty wiring not included. Or so he hoped. Before Marcus could continue, a voice boomed from outside. "'They want us to shed our skin!' Senator Long began, his powerful voice filling large speakers. They want us to give up the very gift that God has given us, our flesh. They say that they can make us live a longer life, possibly forever. No more sickness or dying. What about our souls? They say that we're nothing but fire and neurons. But are our souls nothing but neurons? No. Our souls are more. Our souls are our one true link to the Lord above, and they are treating it as just another computer glitch. Who do they think they are? God? No, they are not God. No, over a thousand mouths replied. Marcus had heard enough. Activate Angel One program, he proclaimed soldier refuses cybernetic legs, a voice said from the television, causing Marcus to halt his pen tip and look up from his desk. As usual, CNN 4 was on the television, mainly for background noise. Marcus knew the voice to be Alan Cummings. Colonel Arthur Long, a soldier with the United States Army, and his unit were ambushed by a group of hostiles during a daily patrol yesterday. After nearly an hour of exchanging bullets, Colonel Long managed to fix a broken radio and call for reinforcements. But while reinforcements were en route, an explosion hit Colonel Long, damaging both of his legs to the point that they had to be removed. Since the colonel was a decorated soldier wounded in the line of duty, the government was willing to pay the bill for a pair of cybernetic legs. The legs would work and feel like his own legs, along with the sensation of touch and pain. But Colonel Long turned the offer down... Marcus's hand tensed and his grip tightened around the blue pen. When asked why, Colonel Long had this to say. Colonel Long appeared on the screen. It is God's will that I lost my legs. I don't feel that it's my right to try to replace them with metal ones, even if that means that I have to spend the rest of my life in a chair. That is God's will. God's will? Marcus grew angry. He looked around his tiny office, remembering why he was a devil and all that he wished to accomplish. The hard work, two college degrees, the debt, the nerve of that man. How could anyone turn down the chance to walk, the chance to run alongside everyone else? Marcus pointlessly hurled the pen at the television screen and watched it harmlessly bounce off. Marcus returned to consciousness and was immediately confused. He didn't remember falling asleep. He was lying on something hard, possibly metal, and it was giving him sensations in his spine. But for the first time in many years, it wasn't discomfort. It wasn't pain. It was some other kind of sensation. He couldn't place the feeling, it was different. Another set of sensations called for Marcus's attention, not because they were different, but because they should not exist at all. He could feel his legs, both of them. Opening his eyes, Marcus was bombarded by light, which was overwhelming for a second, but quickly focused. Rising to sit, Marcus turned to let his feet fall and touch the floor. The floor held a chill, the most wonderful chill that he had ever felt. Marcus was in his own lab, he knew that much. At once, Marcus saw himself, still in the wheelchair and staring back. There were others in the room as well, also staring. For a moment, he was startled, but then he realized what must have been taking place. Marcus was now angel, Angel saw that he was naked except for a pair of white boxer briefs. He admired himself. He was perfect. Every inch of his new skin was flawless. He was muscular, like the statue of David. This was him now, he knew, and he loved the idea. The roar continued to pulse throughout the room, and Angel, after removing a few wires that were stuck to his shaved skull, went to the open window to peer down upon them. He ignored the CEO who tried to speak to him. Angel was only interested in the protesters. He could see them clearly, every head, every hair, each and every smirk, as if they were inches away. Angel could also hear them individually instead of in an overwhelming bundle. He could especially hear Senator Long, who continued to preach. Angel isolated the voice. He might be able to follow it. Without warning, Angel broke out the window screen and leapt through. He allowed the earth to pull him, but only briefly. The fall was incredible. Angel felt the rushing air brush every inch of his skin. Pleasure signals sped throughout his body, but the exhilaration of the plunge was short-lived. Angel's wings opened. He felt the feathers grab the air. The sky was a clear blue. A nice day for a flight. Following the voice of Senator Long, Angel flew toward a short podium sitting beside the Tree of Life. Angel could clearly see Long, in his permanent sitting position, gripping the microphone as if he were speaking to the entire world. In some ways, he might be. One by one, people in the crowd began to notice Angel. Their alerted heads shifted in a massive wave. "'They have done it!' Senator Long screamed into the microphone. "'They have dethroned God!' They have damned us all! Swiftly, the crowd imploded. The police had no choice but to respond. Angel was stunned at how immediately the violence came. Why couldn't they understand? Didn't they see the perfection? But then, something went wrong. Both of his legs began to twitch and then shake before going completely numb. No! Angel grunted. His brain had been scanned, but the underlying problem, the one that Marcus had been convinced had been left behind with his flesh, still existed. It had been more deeply rooted than Marcus had realized. Angel cursed and damned his creator. His right wing went limp, sending him spiraling toward the crowd. He fought, left wing flapping crazily, but he landed nonetheless. The crowd of suits turned to Marcus to shake their heads. They had watched the rise and the fall from their tower. "'Angel one failure,' Marcus told the computer. The screen was already filling up with data being thrown back to them from the fallen angel. What had been the mistake? Marcus would know soon enough, and then he could fix it. And then he could move on to Angel 2.' It took God six steps to make the world, but maybe it would only take Marcus two steps to change it. You've been listening to Evolution, Inc. by Jackson Arthur. And now, to close out tonight's program, I present Threshold by Brett O'Reilly. The trail of blood led through the showrooms to the marketplace, past the concession, and beyond. Patton followed the trail diligently, from its origin in children's, through kitchen and dining, circumventing lighting and bathrooms, but not home organization or textiles, to the open breadth of the floor full of registers and the as-is showroom beyond. The trail was there, and Patton followed it, a bloodhound with a mop, He found his quarry in the recovery department, amidst Allen keys, electric drills with Phillips screwdriver heads, half-erected Kvikney wardrobes, and pallets loaded with Billy bookcases. Eight feet across and six tall it stood, monolithic in its stature away from the showroom floor, a plywood partition covered in cartoonish equestrian images with a facade of a purple door not more than five feet in height framed in the center. A small, solitary, and entirely non-functional burnished steel doorknob protruded from the false store. Inscribed along the doorframe, which itself was colored a soft rose pink, finger-painted in blood, were images neither equestrian nor cartoonish. Patton recognized none of the strange symbols and found focusing on any one for too long hurt his eyes. Shrugging to himself, he reached out to touch one of the bloody sigils, a mixture of morbid and professional curiosity guiding his hand. Tacky. Not quite fresh, but still sticky. That was all. Patton released a breath he hadn't realized he was holding in. He chuckled to himself. <laughs> Itch it. He wiped his hands on his coveralls and thought to himself... You're not in a Stephen King movie, knock on wood. One hand still on his mop, he reached out with the other and lightly rapped, once, twice, thrice, on the purple partition that wasn't a door. To his surprise, the symbols on the doorframe one by one glowed with a crimson light in a seemingly random order. When all seventeen had come to life, he heard a distinct click, and the glow muted. The door that wasn't a door opened a crack. Seconds turned into minutes as Patton stood frozen, staring at the open edge that shouldn't be, at the doorknob that shouldn't pull. A lifelong fan of horror, from movies to novels to campfire ghost stories, he knew he should walk away, run even, put as much distance between himself and the door as possible. His hand reached out, enveloping the child-sized doorknob. He pulled the door open. A pale purplish light poured softly out of the doorframe. He leaned down to peer through, then blinked in confusion as his mind struggled to reconcile the sight before him. Hesitantly, he extended one hand over the threshold. Patton had the briefest moment of clarity before he was taken. A story he had read long ago about an ancient city on the shores of a forgotten lake. Then, he was gone. The door closed behind him, sealing his screams from the empty space that was recovery. The mop, with no hand to hold it, clattered to the floor. Once more, from the top. With feeling came the reply. Detective Mike Hennessy shot his partner a look. It was after 1 a.m., and he was still struggling with the shift change. 6.19 p.m. Our suspect walks into the store, as we can see here. He tapped one of the dozen black and white screens with the eraser end of the pencil. The frozen image of a man in a black suit with a matching fedora, halfway through the Ikea's sliding glass doors rested under the pink rubber tip. The downward angle of the camera left most of the man's face concealed. What little could be seen of the jawline was round and unnaturally pale, so much it stood out even in the monochrome glow of the security monitor. Witnesses, the few who remained on the scene, described him as a... Hennessy checked his notebook. "'Tall albino in sunglasses,' No one thought much of him wearing the sunglasses indoors. They all presumed his eyes were probably light-sensitive from the albinism. Detective Cass Mercer did a slow, lazy turn in the desk chair she'd commandeered, unenthused with a third walkthrough of events. Absently, she wondered what the current rate was for all-inclusive travel packages for Costa Rica. With vacation time closing in, she needed a plan lest she end up spending three weeks on the couch with her cat Rory, binge watching New Who on Netflix and eating Haagen-Dazs coffee ice cream. Except lying on a white sand beach with a fruity tropical drink was not Mercer's idea of a holiday. What she needed was an adventure. Instead, she had Rory, the cat, and her partner Hennessy whom she realized she should at least pretend to listen to. Into Children's, where he picks the one corner where the cameras can't actually see him. Hennessy ran his pencil along three screens, all showing a child's bedroom display. The pink and purple washed out to gray on the security screens. Two of the angles included a pony-painted wall, but failed to capture all but an edge of the doorframe the detectives had been told was there. This is where things get weird. Hennessy stared at the closed-circuit tableau and sighed. We can't see him, but the witnesses can. And what they see... He gestured to other static images, each capturing families and couples with expressions of horror. Is not pretty. Mercer shivered at the thought. She'd seen some crazy stuff in her twelve years working with Hennessy, but this was new. She decided then and there that she needed a proper vacation, somewhere exotic, somewhere new. Our suspect pulls out a knife, not just a knife, mind you. Oh no, not a butcher knife, not a switchblade, not even a paring knife. No, he pulls out some kind of curved ceremonial dagger, like something out of a horror movie, which he then uses to slit his own wrist on the showroom floor. In a little girl's bedroom display. Hennessy shook his head in disgust. And then what does he do? Mercer spoke up. He paints. Hennessy nodded. He paints. He dips his finger into the blood pouring out of his wrist and he paints. People standing around staring, little kids watching. He gestured at a screen with a still image of two crying children, their mother attempting to shield them from the sight. And he fucking finger paints all over an imaginary door.
3: Uh, actually, he painted on the frame, not the door. And it's not an imaginary door, it's called a facade. Fake? Yes. Imaginary? No.
1: Hennessy fixed Mercer with a scowl. She shrugged it off. So, as I was saying, he uses his own blood to finger-paint a bunch of symbols on the door, uh, the door frame. People start freaking out. Some call 911, some go running for security, some just stand around and gawk. And that's when things get really weird. Hennessy paused and stared at the images of the bedroom display as Mercer shifted impatiently in her commandeered chair. According to witnesses, the door that isn't a door opens up and our suspect walks through. Only, he doesn't come through on the other side, because there is no other side to come through on. The other side is a kitchen, and the folks on that side don't even know what's going on. Hennessy tapped a screen showing a middle-aged couple investigating a kitchen countertop and set of cupboards. So our suspect has literally stepped through a door that doesn't exist and has vanished. He's nowhere. He's not on any footage after the incident, there's no sign of him leaving the store, and by the time security gets their asses there, the door that all the witnesses say was a door is no longer a door. It's a... Hennessy reached for the word. Mercer handed it to him. Facade. Yes, thank you. A facade. A facade with bloody finger paint around it. Hennessy turned his back to the TVs and leaned against the security desk, rubbing the bridge of his nose with two fingers. Mercer watched him for a moment with mild concern. The thought that she wasn't the only one who needed a vacation crossed her mind.
3: You want me to pick it up before you, you know, stroke out?
1: She gave him a gently patronizing smile. Hennessy grimaced, his eyes narrowing, which only made his partner's smile wider. With a sigh, he surrendered. The sheer implausibility of the incident was grinding on his nerves, adding to an undefined edginess he'd been carrying around all night. He could feel his agitation floating right below the surface, but didn't want to take it out on his partner. Easier to capitulate. By all means, be my guest, he said. Mercer leaned forward, eager to get on with things.
3: So, the manager and security...
1: She hooked a thumb at the closed door to the security office.
3: Cordon off the kids' area while the general duty officers are showing up. The GDs take statements from the looky-loos, assess the scene, decide there's no threat and no need for forensics, give the home team the okay to clean up, which, of course, is what brings us here. The store closes, everyone goes home, except staff, of course. Two of whom take the vandalized partition from the bedroom set and move it to the maintenance room.
1: Mercer scooted her chair forward to point at an image of a man and a woman, both in golf shirts, pushing the wheeled partition towards a set of oversized swinging double doors.
3: Steve Cody and Lynn Tyler. Both were supposed to clock out after they finished moving the partition. Neither did. In fact, no one sees them again. According to the cameras, they went into the maintenance room, but never came out. And, of course, today just happens to be the day the cameras in the maintenance room suffer from an electrical short. As for everyone who's been in the room since, no one's seen any sign of them. With the possible exception of...
1: She pointed to a screen containing Jeremy Patton and his mop bucket.
3: The janitor. Uh, custodian, maintenance, engineer, whatever he is.
1: Hennessy checked his notebook. Uh, Jeremy Patton.
3: Yes, Jeremy Patton, the man with the mop. Starts at the scene of the crime and works his way through the store, mopping up the blood trail left by the partition, which, if you think about it, is a lot more blood than you'd think there'd be.
1: Mercer mused, more to herself than her partner, before returning to her train of thought.
3: Anyways, he's very clearly good at his job. Doesn't miss a single smear. You might say he's good to the, uh, last drop.
1: <laughs> Hennessy winced.
3: Anyway, he too enters the maintenance room. He too, upon crossing that threshold, mysteriously vanishes. Five other people enter and leave the room without ever seeing any of the missing staff. Two of the five were security guards actively looking. No luck. No sign of them. Which is when we get called in.
1: And now?
3: Well, we've run through the script with the GDs, again with security, and now just the two of us. Now, I'd say,
1: time to take the tour. Great. Hennessy flipped his notebook shut. Where do you want to start? Mercer stared at the bank of cameras, focusing on the screen showing the tall, pale man in the main entrance.
3: Let's start at the beginning, in the bedroom.
1: Mercer stood up and led the way out of the security office and into the hall, where the store manager, a tiny woman named Camilla Parsons, waited with three store security guards. Hennessy took a last look at the televisions before following Mercer into the hall. His eyes found the only clear shot of the pale man's face, the eyes hidden behind dark glasses. Something about the man's face was off, though Hennessy couldn't put his finger on it. Whatever it was, it only increased his apprehensiveness. The sensation remained long after he'd closed the door. Cammy, as the store manager liked to be called, and a short, well-muscled security guard named Rob Yamato escorted Hennessy and Mercer to the scene of the bloodletting, of which there wasn't much to be seen— With the partition removed, there was a child's bedroom display on one side with a pale lavender busunj extendable bed and white stuva wardrobe. On the other side, a farmhouse kitchen furnished with a betraud range and bobbed-in fronted cabinets, the remaining walls decorated in sunflower yellow with blue cornflowers. The two detectives gave the displays a careful once-over. No hidden doors, no secret compartments, not even a kitchen cupboard big enough to hold a pale stranger with slit wrists. As for evidence, Jeremy Patton had done his job well. No traces of blood were visible anywhere. Looks like this is a wash. Mercer spoke up. Hennessy ignored her slight smile. She turned to Cammie. Can
3: you take us to the maintenance room? Uh, certainly, although it's, uh... Not the maintenance room, we call it the recovery department.
1: It was apparent to both detectives Cammie was not so much eager to please as eager to have done with the whole situation, despite her friendly demeanor. Please follow me. She strode off through the Ikea corridors, swimming upstream against the yellow arrows that lay scattered along the floor. Mercer marveled at the woman's size in comparison to their security escort. Yamato wasn't more than two inches taller than Kami, yet was twice as thick in the torso.
3: Probably bench-presses VWs.
1: She mused to herself.
3: Too bad he's not my type.
1: She followed Kami through the store as the two men trailed behind. The route was quicker than the one Patton had taken. Shortcuts abounded through the store. Here, an unobtrusive doorway which cut from bathroom to textiles... There, a narrow aisle that circumvented most of home decor, with its shelves lined with Histmus decorative twine balls, Barakna vases, 100 packs of Glimma tea lights, and a thousand other items with names Mercer was sure were made up by the marketing department while on a weekend bender. Once upon a time, Mercer would have delighted in wandering the Swedish maze, measuring a Malstje glass door cabinet with her eyes, or imagining how the three set of Piatrid seascapes would look above the sofa in her living room. Now, however, she felt like a ghost moving through an abandoned mansion of do-it-yourself Nordic furniture, an incorporeal traveler passing from one realm to the next. And really, she thought to herself, isn't that what you do in Ikea? Move from one realm to the next? From living room world to the bathroom state to the kingdom of textiles? Taking a little of each with you as you go? She glanced at her partner, flashed him a trademark smirk when she realized he was watching her, perhaps a little too closely. He's worried about me, she thought. Worried, but not understanding, not really. He was a good partner, and had been for all her 12 years as a detective, but there were some things she didn't know how to explain, not even to Hennessy's wife, Irene, who was convinced the issue was her lack of a love life. Irene was always trying to fix her up with every lesbian she knew, a very small pool, to say the least she dated the last one, a redhead in her late twenties, for just over a month before the two went their separate ways, which was fine by Mercer. The sex had been lackluster, despite some doctor-slash-companion role-playing. Her sense of humor, sarcastic, hadn't been truly appreciated, and in the end, it didn't fill the void in her soul. What would, she didn't know. What wouldn't fill that hole was a relationship, that much she knew. Thankfully, so did Hennessy, even if he couldn't convince Irene of it. And then, there were the dreams. They'd started a month or so ago, and only fed her waking ennui. Dreams of a great dark lake and a vast lighted city set against a horizon of painted indigo. A colossal stone bridge of granite, or possibly marble, straddled the lake, leading from some unknown blackness behind to the city beyond. As her palanquin crested the bridge, the cloaked figures who bore her set their burden down and knelt on the stone. An immense arch spanned the width of the bridge, unknown symbols carved into the length of its face. In front of this monument, they all waited. For what, Mercer never knew. Every time something was about to happen, that someone was coming to greet them, she would wake up, flushed with excitement or terror, or perhaps both. She was never quite sure. What she was sure of was the dream, every detail, an unknown tableau to which she found herself powerfully drawn, despite it being just a dream. If that wasn't an indication she needed a vacation, she didn't know what was. Aside from a desperate desire for David Tennant to show up on her doorstep with a vigorous cry of Allons-y! Preferably with the lovely Rose along for the ride. She couldn't imagine explaining any of it to Hennessy. Sure, he listened to all her critiques of the latest episodes of Doctor Who. She found Jodie Whittaker quite fetching. But some things... Some things you just didn't share with your partner, even when you trusted that partner with your life.
3: Here, past our, uh, as-is department.
1: Cammy walked past the concession where one could get a hot dog and a soda or a cinnamon bun as a prize for finishing the maze. Mercer snapped out of her reverie and took a deep breath. Recovery department. Missing employees. Graffiti doorway. Time to go to work. With a spring in her step that was there more for show for Hennessy, she followed Cammie, the store manager, and wondered if she was single. Behind them, Hennessy studied his partner with concern. Something was wrong. What, he didn't know. The last couple of months he'd watched his partner drift into a funk, and he felt powerless to do anything about it. She'd talk about her cat, her favorite TV show, even about her last relationship— He'd known from the start it wouldn't work and had tried to warn Irene not to set them up, but whatever was on Cass's mind, she was intent on keeping it to herself. She'd always been the quick-witted contrast to his stoic sensibilities, but lately, lately he wondered if the wisecracks had become a mask for what was really going on. He knew she had vacation time coming up, and as long as she went somewhere and didn't do the dreaded staycation, she'd likely be fine. And if she did stay home, well, he'd keep an extra close eye on her then. He shook off the train of thought and let his mind return to the case. There was something eerie about the whole thing, something he didn't like. The fact that Mercer, who usually was far more intuitive than he, wasn't getting the same vibe as him, meant either he was off his game or she was, neither of which was a good thing. He continued on, the women ahead, Yamato by his side. Silence followed behind. Yamato held open one of the large swinging doors to the recovery department While Cammie dismissed the staff members who had been uneasily standing guard. The room on the other side was cavernous, filled with tables, tools, and furniture displays in various stages of assembly. On the far side hung a gunmetal gray roll up door leading to an underground waste disposal and loading docks. Neither detective needed to inquire about the roll up. The security footage had shown the door remained shut for the entire duration of events as well as two staff appearing on the other side to stand guard on Cammie's instructions. Whatever had happened, no one had left the room who wasn't accounted for. The object of notoriety itself wasn't difficult to locate. It loomed near the back of the room, not far from the roll-up, in an open space at the end of a row of assembly benches, silent and predatory in its purple splendor. Hennessy shuddered, startled at the thought. He glanced, surreptitiously, at Mercer to see if she had the same reaction. To his surprise, she seemed intrigued, even excited. Obviously, not the same reaction. Shall we? He said.
3: We shall,
1: was her response. Cami and Yamato stood back as the two detectives began slowly combing the recovery department working their way towards the crouching partition. Methodically, they checked corners, crevices, and cupboards, anywhere a person could hide, or where a body could be stashed. Hey. Mercer called out as she slid home the door on a black Hemnes wardrobe.
3: If you find one that's bigger on the inside, let me know. I need a new wardrobe.
1: Hennessy grunted in response from across the room. They arrived at the partition together. Hennessy spoke first. "'Nothing. No signs of struggle. No signs of anything being...,' he gestured at the general clutter of the room. "'Abnormally disturbed. Nothing seems out of place except the mop and bucket.' He turned to the wheeled yellow pail, its well full of cold brownish water. The mop lay a few feet away, in front of the partition.'
3: Not much in the way of exits, either,
1: Mercer pointed out.
3: The door we came in, the roll-up, which is locked, and a few ventilation ducts, on which all the grates are firmly bolted.
1: She waved absently at steel grates mounted high in the walls, her attention on the partition and the false door outlined on its face. The partition itself was set into a metal frame with heavy-duty casters on the bottom for easy transport about the store. Across its surface cavorted cartoon ponies Hennessy recognized from his niece's fifth birthday party. Thin pink strips of wood formed a narrow door not more than five feet high. Centered in the door was a tiny metal doorknob. On the pink strips of doorframe, embossed in crimson, were symbols Hennessy had never seen before.
3: They're like hieroglyphics.
1: Mercer knelt down for a closer examination. Hennessy dropped to his haunches and joined her, unsure of exactly what he was looking at. Symbols, for sure, but symbols that gave him a headache and forced him to avert his eyes. He had difficulty focusing on anyone long enough to tell what it was supposed to be. Was that one supposed to be a starburst? And that one, an axe? Or an elaborately drawn pea fallen down on its curve? Was that one a person? He couldn't force himself to look long enough to be sure. There was one detail he did manage to catch, though Mercer was a second ahead of him.
3: When did the pale man do his finger painting again? What time of day?
1: Mercer asked their Ikea escorts. Cami glanced at Yamato for confirmation.
3: It was right around the dinner rush at 6 o'clock, 6.30.
1: Yamato shrugged, having only started his shift an hour previous. Mercer glanced at her watch, then at Hennessy.
3: It's just after 1 a.m. now, approximately seven hours. These should be dry by now.
1: The two detectives looked curiously at the symbols on the doorframe, which glistened as if they were freshly painted.
3: I feel like I should know some of these symbols, but I don't recognize them. It's like some ancient language. Although that one looks like a telephone booth,
1: she added. Impulsively, Hennessy reached out for the doorknob. Cami, Yamato, and Mercer all froze in place, watching as his hand haltingly closed around the steel orb. Not daring to breathe, Hennessy turned the knob. It didn't move. All four exhaled together with relief and the slightest touch of embarrassment. Hennessy shook his head and straightened up. Sometimes a facade is just a facade. He looked around at the expanse of the room. Still doesn't explain what happened to our missing people, though. A mildly disappointed Mercer glanced at the roll-up.
3: Maybe they did get out the back somehow. Ended up in the loading bay.
1: She turned to Cammy.
3: Do you have a key for the door? Actually, I do. I, I don't normally carry it, but I thought you might need it.
1: Hennessy looked at the ring of keys on Yamato's belt then at Yamato himself. The security guard shrugged, but didn't say anything. Hennessy concealed his smile. Mercer turned to her partner.
3: I'll poke around out there if you want to keep an ear out for the door.
1: Ha ha, very funny. Cammie unlocked the roll-up and opened it, revealing two nervous staff in yellow IKEA shirts. Sending them off to their regular duties, Cammy led Mercer out into the store's back bays, leaving Hennessy and Yamato alone with the door. Hennessy drifted around to the other side of the partition to view the scene. The reverse was kitchen decor, the now familiar sunflower yellow with a framed painting of a farmhouse hanging over a tea towel rack. No doorknob, no door frame, just a slice of rural life. Yamato's voice floated over from the opposite side. You know, these symbols remind me of a Stephen King story. Everything's eventual. Yeah, how's that? Hennessy studied the house and the frame and contemplated life on a farm. Promptly dismissed the idea. Well, the story's about this kid who sees symbols in his head, which he can then write down to kill people. He calls them Sankophytes. The symbols, that is. Only the person they're meant for can look at him. Anyone else gets a headache. And judging by the one I've got coming on, I think I'm safe. Knock on wood. Hennessy heard Yamato rap on the panel three times. With the last knock, Hennessy's veins inexplicably filled with ice. On the opposite side of the partition, he heard a click, like a door opening. What the hell? Yamato's voice was full of amazement. From his side of the wall, Hennessy heard a door swing open on hinges that didn't exist. Before him, the kitchen facade remained exactly that, a facade, nothing more. Instinct pushed aside reason as he rounded the corner of the partition, one hand snapping open the holster of his glock without pulling the trunk. Yamato, short to begin with, was bent slightly over, looking through the door that had opened in the partition. Across the threshold, purplish light spilled out, bathing the guard and the surrounding floor in its luminescence. Along the frame, the symbols—the Sankophytes, as Yamato had called them—were glowing a soft crimson. "'Yamato, step away from the door!' Hennessy warned, slowly advancing." ''It's so... it's so...'' Yamato put a hand on either side of the door, leaning forward to better see. Hennessy stepped behind Yamato and started to kneel down to see for himself, when it struck, snaking around Yamato's right arm to the elbow and pulling taut. Hennessy thought it was a tentacle at first. However, the undulating ridges of muscle combined with a muted whitish coloration made him think of a worm— albeit one of colossal size. Yamato lurched forward with a yelp, his right hand slipping off the doorframe, his left clutching at the edge. His own reflexes honed by adrenaline, Hennessy wrapped both arms around Yamato's chest and pulled, gaining a few inches of ground. Both men planted their feet against the bottom of the partition and strained against the alien appendage, Yamato's face written over in pain and terror, Help me! Yamato's plea was a murmur. Fear and concentration melded together. And as he found himself thankful, Yamato was a weightlifter. Whatever the appendage belonged to, it was strong. Strong enough that without Yamato's extra muscle, both of them would have been easily pulled through the door. Adjusting his position for a better angle, Hennessy was horrified to realize that what he thought was one appendage were actually three, all with gaping orifices at their ends. Suddenly, multiple thin, milky-white tendrils shot out of each orifice, penetrating the skin on Yamato's muscled arm. Hennessy could see the tendrils moving under the surface like living strands of twine. Yamato half-shrieked, half whimpered, ''Oh God, oh God, they're inside me!'' He writhed momentarily in Hennessy's arms. Then went slack. The tug-of-war ceased. Hennessy's mind reeled in horror as the long, pale strands began to pulse under Yamato's skin, and Yamato began to... lessen in his arms. An eighteen-year veteran of the Force... Hennessy had never come as near to breaking as he did in that moment, as Yamato deflated like a tetrapack through a straw. In all of those eighteen years, Hennessy had only drawn his weapon three times, and only once was he forced to use it. There was no hesitation to do either this time. His Glock barked three times. A horrid, keening sound arose from the other side of the door as the milky tendrils withdrew from Yamato's shell with frightful speed, and the ropey appendages that housed them withdrew from the guard's arm and into the queer, purplish light. Hennessy caught a brief glimpse beyond of a vast bridge that sloped down to a lighted city of impossible angles and a... something some entity whose proportions his mind refused to register, appendages flailing about. Then he stumbled backwards, still clutching the late Akio Robert Yamato, as the door swung shut. He might have kept his feet had it not been for the abandoned mop bucket. He managed not to overturn it, but still fell to the floor with his gruesome cargo. As pain shot through his tailbone, he scrambled away from Yamato's corpse, horrified. The security guard's skin had turned yellowish-orange and hung loose on what had been a solidly muscled frame not more than a minute ago. Hollow was the word that leapt to Hennessy's mind. Footsteps announced the arrival of Cammy and Mercer, the latter who came around the partition first, Glock drawn and pointed low. She froze at the sight of Yamato. Bewilderment crossed her features. She looked at Hennessy with questioning eyes. A moment behind her, Kami came around the edge of the partition and screamed at the tableau. Her breath started to come raggedly as hyperventilation set in. Mercer ignored her and instead moved forward for a closer look at Yamato's diminished remains.
3: What the hell happened?
1: Mercer's voice was full of horror and fascination. Cass, I don't even know how to tell you. The door... it opened. It actually opened. There was this... this thing on the other side.' Hennessy struggled to his feet as the two women circled fully around to the purple side of the partition. Cammie still struggled to get her breathing under control. Mercer, weapon still in hand, stepped up to the door and tried the knob. Nothing moved. She looked at Hennessy, concern written on her face. I... Hennessy shook his head. I swear it opened. Wait. Hennessy struggled to recall the details. He... He knocked. He knocked three times. Mercer, still clearly worried, reached out to the door without taking her eyes off Hennessy and rapped three times. Both detectives and the store manager held their breath. A yellow glow began to build from the sancophytes outlining the door. Both Mercer's and Cammie's eyes went wide in disbelief. Hennessy raised his weapon and leveled it at the door. Cass, step away from the door, now! Still in awe, Mercer stepped back, giving the partition space. The yellow glow grew brighter and brighter before a click resonated in the air. The sankophytes dimmed but did not extinguish as the door swung open, purplish light spilling into the room. A figure stepped through the door a tall, pale man dressed in a black suit with dark glasses and a fedora. The man from the security footage. He was taller than the cameras had conveyed. Thinner, too. Hennessy would have said gaunt, but the pale man's face was full and roundish. Abnormally so. Hennessy's apprehensiveness from earlier crept back. However, with it also came a sudden moment of clarity. Pardon my intrusion. The man's voice was crisp and clean of any accent. I have come seeking Louise Casilda Mercer... Hennessy and Mercer glanced at each other in confusion. Both raised their guns and kept them leveled at the pale stranger. Shakily, Mercer spoke up. Who the hell are you? The pale man spread slender arms and long fingered hands as he gave a slight bow. I am a messenger. I have come to deliver an invitation. One hand was suddenly holding a yellow envelope with black brocade. As impressed as Hennessy was with such sleight of hand, it also ratcheted up his inner tension. If the pale man could produce an envelope before they had time to react, what else could he pull out? I presume one of you would be Madame Mercer? The messenger's head swiveled between Cammie and Mercer. Mercer backed up a few steps and gestured towards the nearest work table with her Glock. Put it there. Something in her voice tweaked at Hennessy, something he couldn't quite grasp in the moment. It was like the mask she'd been wearing these last few months was starting to slip. The mask... Finally, Hennessy thought. Finally, something clicks... The messenger complied with slow, meticulous movements, then moved to the far side of the doorframe. Hennessy was about to speak when Cammie burst out. What did you do to him? Why did you kill him? The messenger glanced in the direction of Yamato and cocked his head. After a brief pause, he responded, My apologies, madame. The portal is... keyed to open for a particular individual. Anyone other than that individual attempting to cross the threshold may find themselves in less than hospitable circumstances? I'm sorry for your loss. Hennessy seized the moment to interject. Let us see how sorry you are. Why don't you take off the sunglasses and the mask? He kept his gun leveled at the messenger's center mass, though his arms had begun to ache from the effort. The adrenaline surge from trying to help Yamato had fled leaving him weak. Mask? Camilla peered at the stranger with fearful curiosity. The messenger's thin, lipless mouth seemed to form a trace of a smile. Sir, I am not wearing a mask. The mouth moved, though barely. Not a mask. Cammy whispered, her voice edged with fear. Mercer broke in.
3: A wedding? A royal wedding?
1: Hennessy was stunned to see she'd holstered her weapon and was holding the envelope and a similarly decorated invitation in her hands. Yes, the messenger turned to her. Yes, His Majesty extends his personal invitation, not just to attend the ceremony but to participate in the choosing of his bride. Mercer's eyes narrowed. I'm not... His bride-to-be? No, she will be chosen through a special ceremony. And you're not... No, I am only a messenger.
3: And how did you know I'd be here, now that i knock on the door?
1: The messenger replied, Some things are simply written in the fabric of reality, as unchangeable as the stars, as destined as your answer. Hennessey glanced back and forth between the two in angry confusion. Cass, you're not seriously considering going with this freak, are you? I don't know. I I don't know, Mike. I mean,
3: think about it. This isn't just a chance to go to a wedding, a, a royal wedding at that. I mean, this is a chance to see...
1: She gazed at the yawning doorway.
3: A whole other world, Mike... This is the vacation of a lifetime, and the vacation of...
1: Mercer hesitated as the whole truth of her next statement dawned on her.
3: Mike, this is the vacation of my dreams.
1: Cass, are you serious? This isn't your madman in a blue box you're always on about. This is some pallid freak in a mask who killed Yamato. Hennessy gestured wildly at the security guard's corpse. And probably killed the missing staff as well. You don't know what he'll do to you on the other side of that door. You can't trust him. Mercer looked at her partner and gave a strange, sad smile. I...
3: I know you don't understand, Mike. You never really have.
1: She nodded at him.
3: But that's okay.
1: She turned to the messenger.
3: It's... bigger on the other side, isn't it?
1: world bigger, came the reply Mercer stepped up to the door hesitating at the threshold
3: I'm sorry Mike,"
1: she said looking back at her longtime partner I am too Cass I am too Hennessy squeezed the trigger of his glock three times all three shots struck the messenger in the upper chest launching him back against the partition which threatened to topple over.
3: His face!
1: Cammie started to shriek.
3: It's not a mask. His face is not a mask.
1: Hennessy gaped in horror at the messenger's face. The dark sunglasses had fallen askew and hung from one ear, revealing a bare patch of white flesh, indistinguishable from cheek to forehead. On the other side, a single milky eye the size of a billiard ball with a pupil as big as a silver dollar, darted back and forth from Hennessy to Cammy to Mercer. With a popping sound that reminded Hennessy of pulling a rubber mat from the bottom of a bathtub, the messenger's face began to separate itself from what Hennessy realized was its host body. The messenger had not been wearing a mask. It had been wearing a costume. With dispassionate control... Hennessy readjusted his aim and fired twice. Sensing the coming attack, the messenger, the real messenger, pulled itself to one side, causing the first shot to impact with a skinless, eyeless human head. Muscle, bone, and gray matter splattered across ponies dancing on a field of purple. The second shot struck home. Not in the horrid cyclopean eye, but the messenger's pallid flesh. It started to keen so violently that Hennessy was forced to cover his ears from the pain. He stumbled forward to pull his stunned partner from the door, but the messenger was quicker. Insectile legs propelled it from its now-defunct host to Mercer, knocking her over the threshold as the door closed behind it. Hennessy hit a blank wall, The Sankophytes, which had glowed throughout, faded away, not just in illumination, but as if they never existed. When Hennessy twisted the doorknob, it wouldn't turn. When he pounded on the door three times, no click was heard, no seam appeared, nor did one on all his successive attempts, which was how security found him, having been summoned by the sound of gunshots." Pounding on a purple colored partition, surrounded by frolicking ponies, yelling, Cass! over and over again, oblivious to two corpses, one desiccated and one disfigured, as well as to Camilla Parsons' endless mad litany.
3: Not a mask. N- not, not a mask. Not a mask.
1: You've just heard Threshold by Brett O'Reilly. Well, folks, that does it for tonight. I'd like to thank Jackson Arthur and Brett O'Reilly for their stories this evening, as well as their publisher, Velox Books. You can find collections containing these stories over at their website, www.veloxbooks.com. Also, Rissa Montañez and Melissa Medina deserve a mention for their exceptional performances this evening. I'll be back next week with a particularly harrowing story of childhood suburban bliss. Until then, listeners, stay spooky. You've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Tonight's episode was hosted and narrated by yours truly, Eric Peabody. Original music provided by Eric Peabody and Nikki McSorley. Finalization by Eric Peabody and Craig Groshek. Got a terrifying tale of your own that you'd like performed? Email it to us at natalie at to have your work considered for future production. Seeing as how we're all living in a technological nightmare of our own devising, I'll ask you to follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on social media and upvote, subscribe, and hit the bell notification icon if you're listening to this on YouTube. Not only will you have appeased the dark gods of cyberspace, but you'll be kept in the loop as we prepare more terrifying content. If you'd like access to uninterrupted horror, free of ads and these annoying bookend segments, might I recommend becoming a patron? You'll get access to hundreds of episodes of this show, as well as everything from the other programs in the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights cabal. That means all of Otis Jiry's Scary Stories Told in the Dark, Drew Blood's Dark Tales, Paul J. McSorley's Fear from the Heartland, and more. It's a veritable smorgasbord of horrific delights. As for me personally, I'm on most social media as Viking Guitar or Viking Guitar Productions. I'm always on the lookout for new stories to narrate and new music projects to mix or master. If that's of interest to you, feel free to reach out and we can talk turkey. Also...